This week, the big story is healthcare. Again. On the campaign trail and since taking office, President Trump has made some significant promises about the kind of health care he'd be able to provide for the American people. And the plan will be repeal and replace Obamacare. We're going to have a health care that is far less expensive and far better. Okay. But Trump's efforts to come through on these promises, they've faced a lot of hurdles along the way. In March, the House first failed to bring a bill to the floor for a vote before later managing to pass what was a controversial one. The Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, determined that bill, if enacted, would leave 23 million more Americans uninsured in the next decade. We covered the House process in great detail in an early episode of this podcast, so go back and listen to that one if you missed it. Today, though, we're calling this episode, Can Trump Come Through on His Healthcare Promises?, part two, as we examine what's gone on since that bill moved to the Senate. Here's what's happened so far. Late last week, after weeks of working on the Senate health care bill in secret, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell unveiled a proposal that would put big dents in the Affordable Care Act. McConnell's hope was to pass that bill before senators left for the July 4th recess. There will be ample time to analyze, discuss, and provide thoughts before legislation comes to the floor. And I hope every senator takes that opportunity. Things didn't go as planned. Centrist Republican senators opposed the bill for its cuts that could leave many Americans without any coverage at all. For millions of Americans and many Nevadans, I'm telling you right now, I cannot support a piece of legislation that takes insurance away from tens of millions of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Nevadans. And conservative senators argued that the bill doesn't go far enough to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Three other senators are releasing a statement as we speak, and this statement will say that we cannot support the current bill. We're open to negotiation, but we want the bill to look more like a repeal. Um, We're afraid that when we read the bill, that it actually looks like a reiteration or a keeping of Obamacare. As we estimate the cost of Amid those disagreements, McConnell decided to delay the vote with a goal to submit a new version of the bill to the CBO by Friday. That review takes about two weeks, making a pretty tight timeline for senators to vote before August recess. The bill needs to win over 50 of the 52 Republican senators to pass. Okay, that is a lot. So where do things stand now? What is President Trump's role in all of this anyway? And what changes can we expect in the Senate's forthcoming version of the bill? How far does this even move the needle on the Republican promise to repeal and replace Obamacare? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. To help us answer some of our burning questions around health care, we have The Post's all-star health policy reporter Paige Cunningham here. Paige is the author of The Health 202. It's our daily newsletter that makes the world of health policy both understandable and interesting. Paige, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be on. So let's start at the beginning of this. What is in this Senate bill as of today? What's interesting about this bill is it actually would retain the Obamacare subsidies largely, which is a big difference from the House bill. So it basically would still base these subsidies on income, just like under the Affordable Care Act. The House bill would have based them only on age. And this was done so that the Senate bill would be more responsive to the needs of people in buying health insurance so that those who are of less means would get more assistance. Another difference 
difference with the Senate bill is that it would enact actually larger cuts to Medicaid and would actually reduce federal spending by about 26 percent starting in that year. So that's compared to the law that exists now. So compared to Obamacare. Compared to Obamacare. That's correct. Yeah. Another way that the Senate bill is different than the House version is it would actually retain more of the protections for people with pre-existing conditions. The House bill would have allowed states to opt insurers out of some of those regulations. Yeah. Another thing are the individual mandates. So that's something that existed in Obamacare. It was modified in the House bill. And now it seems like it doesn't exist at all in the Senate. Is that correct? So what's interesting about this is that the Senate bill originally didn't include any incentive for people to buy coverage. That was actually added in because I think there's this recognition among Republicans that you do have to have some incentive for healthy people to buy coverage so that it's not just the sick folks and so that the market costs don't spiral out of control. The way that the House approaches that is that it would allow insurers to charge people 30 percent more on their premiums if they don't maintain continuous coverage, if they have a lapse in coverage for about two months. The Senate takes a little bit of a different approach. It requires people to wait for six months for their insurance to kick in if they have a lapse in coverage of more than two months. This is seen as a weaker incentive for people to buy coverage than the individual mandate. And so the Congressional Budget Office has actually estimated that the uninsured rate would go up Uh, significantly in the first few years after the Senate bill would be passed because people wouldn't have this mandate to buy coverage that they do under the Affordable Care Act. So people might choose not to buy health insurance at all. Right. That's correct. They may be fine with having to wait six months for coverage to kick in. They might just say, hey, you know, I'll take that risk. Uh, I'll go without coverage. I'm healthy right now. Um, you know, I'm not having to pay a fine because the individual mandate is repealed. And so I'm just going to kind of take that risk and opt out of coverage for the time being. So something that you've written about, and it's a point that the Democrats have been making, is that lack of health care and this bill in particular could result in the deaths of many, that this is going to lead to people's deaths. Does the does not having health care actually cause or does it have a correlation with likelihood of, of dying? Is that a valid argument? I would answer that by saying there is some correlation, yes, between having health insurance and the mortality rate. However, let's take a step back. 28 million people still lack coverage in the U.S. The Affordable Care Act halved the uninsured rate, so it did make big strides in that direction, but it in no way achieved what supporters of the law hoped it would. And so when Democrats argue that Republicans are going to you know, allow people to die by rolling back coverage and, and so forth, let's remember that their law wasn't perfect in that regard either. The other part of this is that hospital emergency rooms are still going to be required to accept sick people. The Affordable Care Act didn't change that. The Senate bill wouldn't change that. People who seriously need care in the U.S. still who show up at hospitals will get the care they need. One thing that's been really interesting, though, is even though the uninsured rate has gone down since the Affordable Care Act was passed, emergency room use hasn't actually gone down as much as we would have expected. And um, Emergency room use by the uninsured? Correct. Right. Well, and and even people who have, you know, perhaps have new coverage through Medicaid expansion or through the marketplaces. And we're still trying to figure out why that is. It could possibly be because people kind of get in the habit of going to the emergency room for their care. And so even though they might now have coverage under the Affordable Care Act, they still kind of have those habits of going in whenever whenever they need help. And that's sort of an ongoing problem that needs to be solved. 
We've talked a little bit about some of the people who are affected by this Senate bill. Let's talk more specifically. So I am a person who is fortunate to have employer-funded health care. I'm young. Am I affected at all by this bill? I would say largely no. There are some peripheral effects for sure, but we're largely talking about people who are buying on the individual market, who don't have employer-sponsored coverage, and people who are on Medicaid. Under the vision laid out by the Affordable Care Act, people earning up to 133% of the federal poverty level would be on the Medicaid program. People above that threshold who don't have employer-sponsored coverage would be able to get these subsidies through the marketplaces. The Senate bill casts a little bit of a different vision. It would pull back the Medicaid program pretty significantly. And these people who lose Medicaid would then be able to go to the marketplaces and be able to get a subsidy to buy a private plan. So who are the people that now have gained something from this Senate bill? The winners are younger people, largely. This Senate bill would provide waivers for states to opt out of a lot of the insurance regulations under the Affordable Care Act. So, for instance, they could opt out of essential health benefits that insurers are required to cover. And this, in turn, would cause premiums to go down because people could buy leaner plans. This would largely benefit people who are healthier, who maybe don't need as extensive of benefits and who might be looking for a lower premium but a higher deductible plan. The people that it will hurt are the people who are in the older age bracket. And so according to estimates from the Kaiser Family Foundation, people that are in the 18 to 34 age bracket would be paying roughly 17% more in their premiums. People between ages 55 and 64 would be paying 115% more for their premiums. And for a lot of these people, they can't actually afford to have that kind of increase in their premiums. That's sort of the argument, right, which is why you see these partially why you see these estimates from the Congressional Budget Office that this Senate bill would cause 22 million fewer people to be insured by 2026. That's partly because people wouldn't have this individual mandate to buy coverage. And some of them would see the cost increases and just calculate that it was too expensive to buy insurance. One piece of this that has come up is opioid addiction treatment. So this is something that's largely been sort of a bipartisan agreement that this is a problem in our country. Some senators care deeply about having more funding for opioid addiction treatment in this bill. How has that been negotiated? What are we seeing in terms of, of opioid addiction? This has been the key issue for Senators Rob Portman of Ohio and Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. This was a big sticking point for them. They had asked McConnell to put a lot of funding into the bill for opioid abuse prevention. Turns out they only got a tiny sliver of funding in the bill. I believe there's only about $2 billion provided. And they, had asked, they had asked for $40 billion. This is a pretty easy way that McConnell could sort of buy their votes for this bill. Given that this bill doesn't have a ton of money toward opioid abuse, not as much as they asked for, given that it could potentially hurt older people, it could hurt people who have less money, how is the public receiving this? Are, are people on board? What's, what's been the public perception? The House bill really struggled with public perception. Polls have shown that only about 20 percent of the public support it. Medicaid is a pretty popular program. And so when people hear that some of those government benefits would be rolled back, they have a pretty visceral reaction. And these are certainly polls that the moderates are paying attention to. We have two moderate senators who are facing tough reelection battles next year, Dean Heller of Nevada and Jeff Flake of Arizona. Heller came out 
out last week as the first moderate who said he would not vote for the bill without significant revisions. And so as they go home for the July 4th recess over the next week and a half, they're going to be hearing from constituents who don't like this bill. And that means that McConnell's going to really have to court these folks and really reassure them that Republican Party machines will have their back next year. Local officials come face-to-face with public perception and the ways people experience the consequences of healthcare legislation every day. One mayor, John Giles, is a Republican who has seen tens of thousands of his constituents gain coverage through Obamacare. Mayor Giles is the mayor of Mesa, Arizona. Mesa has been a fast-growing city for a long time. During the uh, the economic downturn, we kind of hit the pause button. I think you know Arizona was one of the last places to experience the recovery, but but we are back and in fast growth mode once again. In the census that was released two weeks ago, uh, we moved up from 38th to 36th largest city in the country. So uh, we're the the spring training home of the Chicago Cubs. So when they're in town playing a ball game, we're over a half a million people because that stadium seats 16,000. Just last night I went to the Cubs-Nationals game here in Washington. Nice. <laughs> nice. I wish I'd been with you. That, uh, so we're um, March, like I say, is a big time for us. We have the Cubs and the A's, and we're part of the Cactus League, so it's a, it's a fun time. We, we're, we're part of the Phoenix metropolitan area. We're the, the second biggest city in, in the Phoenix metro area. So we, we experience some, uh, we have our share of challenges. Keeping up with, with growth is a challenge. But we're also a very conservative city. I'm a Republican that was elected in a nonpartisan election to be the, the mayor of Mesa, so that's my personal background, but, but Mesa is a great place to live. So speaking of some of those challenges, can you tell me a little bit about how Obamacare, how the Affordable Care Act, has helped or harmed the people of Mesa? Yeah, you know, uh, I think the estimate is we have about twenty or 30,000 people that were added to the to health insurance roles as a result of Obamacare. So. I would, I think, join with most people in saying that the flaws and weaknesses of Obamacare are, are evident, and I would join with my Republican colleagues in saying we need to find a better system, but I, I would say on the whole has been a, a net positive. Uh, we have, like I say, tens of thousands of people in my community and, and throughout the state that are insured now that were not prior to Obamacare. So given that that's the case, if this particular bill as it exists now were to be passed, how would constituents in, in Mesa be affected? Well, we're very concerned about this. And, and this highlights how health care is really very much a local issue because this would have a severe impact on cities and towns across the United States. Mayors look at issues you know, on the street level, and that's because that's, that's where we operate. But as a mayor, I frequently ride along with our police department and our fire uh, medical department and whenever I have that experience, I'm struck by the impression that, that most of the calls that we go out on have a, have a root cause in either mental health issues or in substance abuse addiction issues. And whenever we have our emergency responders acting as primary care providers, that's a problem. But uh, if we you know, phase out Medicaid and if we make some of the, the, the changes that are suggested in the pending legislation, those right now, those two root causes of, of a lot of the medical issues in my community, they're being ignored by the by the pending legislation. Are you hearing from your constituents on this? Are people approaching you with personal stories about their struggles with health care? Uh, absolutely. I'm hearing from individuals. I'm also hearing from the industry. The, the largest employer in Mesa, Arizona, is the hospital. 
and they are scared to death of the pending legislation. They, they made some significant concessions during the negotiations for Obamacare where they, they agreed to dramatically lower costs, thinking that they would make up the difference in volume. But the proposed legislation right now, it's no exaggeration to say that there, we, we will see hospitals close uh, in, in Arizona and that will severely impact the economy of my city, let alone you know, the, the medical side of things. You've advocated for improving the Affordable Care Act rather than necessarily passing at least specifically this Senate bill or the previous House bill. From your perspective, how should the Affordable Care Act be improved? You know, as a city, we've been trying to adapt to the new rules uh, under affordable care. We've been trying to, to say, what can we do to be a good partner, you know, in this, this new system? And so we have been experimenting in innovative ways with providing health care that's complementary to the new way of, of funding health care. So, for example, we have, when we get a 911 call, we triage that call and do everything we can to send out a, a vehicle that includes a nurse practitioner and, and the goal there is to keep people from being transported to the emergency room to provide more cost-effective and more preventative care. We have the same types of vehicles that are designated to go out for in mental health situations. Again, and the goal there is to keep people from, from going to the emergency room and rather to, to get them into the right facility and, and bypass the unnecessary cost of going to the ER. I don't know that, that that is the answer, but that is one of the innovative things that cities are doing to try to have a, a more cost-effective and more efficient medical system as it relates to working with the federal government. What do you hope to see next? You know, where do you think this bill is going to go? Where, how do you think it's going to progress? What would you like to see? Well, I'm hoping that the Republican senators that have slowed this down will stick to their guns and that Mr. McConnell and the Democrats will come together and negotiate. If this is a one-party solution, it's going to be a flawed solution. Uh, and it will be you know, just uh, undone as quickly as it takes to elect a new president and a new party in, at the Congress. So I think we need to come together and look for a bipartisan solution that's going to be sustainable, that's going to be the new way that we do things going forward. Page. We clearly have a lot of senators who are on the fence. I think the number now is about nine. They've not announced support for the bill. It basically puts us in a position this week where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced plans to delay this vote due to lack of support until, as you mentioned, after the July 4th recess. When does this mean we could see something actually voted on? Well, what we heard today is that McConnell is aiming to send a revised bill to the Congressional Budget Office by Friday. He's operating on a pretty tough timeline because it takes the CBO about two weeks to score the bill, and McConnell really wants a score before a vote is held. Assuming a score comes back around July 14th, McConnell would have about two weeks more to hold a vote on the bill before August recess starts. What does delaying this solve? What Do you expect that this delay is actually going to lead to a passing of this bill? You know, this bill is not really about health policy in a sense. It is about giving enough political cover to the senators to support it. If you look back at the way things went down with the House bill, 
Congressman Fred Upton, a moderate, came out at one point and said he opposed the House bill. They then added in about $8 billion more funding for reinsurance pools, and suddenly, magically, he was on board with it. And so this is about McConnell giving senators a political out for supporting the bill. You see Cruz really pushing this amendment that would basically allow states to sell plans that are not compliant with any of the Affordable Care Act regulations as long as they offer one plan that is. This is a change that Cruz has said if it's added to the legislation, he would probably support it. There could be other tweaks made, you know, for the moderates, as I mentioned, the met changes to the federal growth rate for Medicaid spending, things like that. So even if amendments maybe don't significantly shift the bill itself or don't shift how many people would be covered under the bill, that's not so important. What's important is that the senators can go back to their states and say, hey, I got this change added to the bill and now it's a good bill and so I can vote for it. Yeah. And I suppose this is what happened with the House. You know, we saw it wasn't able to make a vote the first time. It didn't hit the floor. So, you know, they delayed it uh, quite a few weeks, uh, I think from March to May, in fact, and and then it eventually passed. So perhaps it will be analogous. But let's talk about Mitch McConnell, the man. So can you describe how he operates? What drives him? Is he somebody who really cares about public sentiment towards him? Is he somebody who cares deeply just about repealing and replacing Obamacare? What drives him in in this conversation. McConnell is widely regarded as a very skilled legislator, very skilled at getting people on board with complicated policy. I think McConnell is very cognizant of the fact that if he does not hold a vote on a bill repealing and replacing much of the Affordable Care Act, the Republican base is going to be very, very angry in 2018. Remember, Republicans have spent seven years promising to do this. If they didn't vote, it would be probably the biggest retreat from a political promise ever. And so I think McConnell is determined to hold a vote, even if he doesn't know that the bill would pass in July. He needs to be able to go back to the base and say, hey, I tried. Maybe I wasn't able to make it happen, uh, but I did my best to make this happen. So that's a good t- a good moment to kind of pivot to Donald Trump's role in this. President Trump is a man who has said multiple times that Obamacare is on its way to imploding. He said that he, on the campaign trail, he really preached that he would be able to bring the best health care, the greatest health care we've ever seen. He even called the House bill retrospectively mean after it had already passed, even though he advocated that it should pass. What does Donald Trump want here? So if you look at Donald Trump's statements over the last few months, you sort of see this growing recognition on his part that it's very, very hard to cover a lot of Americans without a lot of government involvement. And so I think he was privately very dismayed when he saw the rolling back of federal Medicaid spending in the Senate bill. And that's why you saw his comments about it sort of being mean and and cold hearted. You know, Trump praised single payer systems up until the time that he ran. I think he envisions a much more expansive role for government in providing health insurance to people. And that's really at odds with the vision of Republicans. And I think that you see that kind of coming out as he looks at the legislation that they they have come up with. What about his point that Obamacare will implode? Will it? A lot of the marketplaces are in pretty serious trouble for 2018. If you look at certain states, uh, Iowa is one, Ohio is one, Missouri is one, Washington state is one, where there are counties where people may not have any Obamacare insure option on the marketplaces or only one. It's really a regional issue as insurers have kind of looked at what the 
makeup of enrollees are by county and state. And so you can sort of make the case both ways. But I think there is pretty wide recognition that insurers need more certainty if they're going to stay in these marketplaces. The Senate bill would actually continue these extra federal payments for cost sharing reductions for two years. And so one, you know, selling point for this for this bill is the CBO said that it actually would go pretty far towards stabilizing the individual marketplace over the next few years by sort of providing insurers with that certainty about what's going to come down the pipeline. And so probably the best thing that Republicans could do right now for the marketplaces, get their act together and figure out whether they're going to pass this bill or not. How influential is Trump actually in this? So something that we've written about even just this week is that essentially no senators really fear Trump. He doesn't make people feel like they have to fall in line. So how much power does he actually have in this process? You know, if you look at what happened earlier this week, Trump actually called Mike Lee on Monday when Lee was talking about how he opposed the bill and Trump was really trying to persuade him to fall in line. That didn't work. And on Tuesday, Lee announced that he wasn't going to even vote to start a debate on the bill. And so I think that's a good example to look at as, you know, Trump really doesn't have the ability to kind of bludgeon people to bring them on board. And I think it is because, you know, while a lot of these guys did endorse Trump during the campaign, they don't view him as somebody who really understands the political challenges that they're facing back in their home states if they vote for this legislation. How does this compare to Obama's level of influence in in 2009? Well, you know, Obama wasn't really regarded as a great negotiator in Congress either. I mean, everyone always complained about how he didn't come to the Hill enough and he didn't sit down with members enough and he wasn't good at cultivating that relationship. But I think that Democrats overall were just a lot better at guiding the Affordable Care Act through back in 2009 and 2010. Um, They held a lot of hearings on it. This is something that, you know, the Clintons had started this effort back in the 90s. They had been talking about health policies for over a decade. And so I think that's what Republicans are really lacking as they try to pass this bill. It's surprising that Republicans are lacking that kind of thing because this is not just a promise that Trump made. This is a, this is a promise that Republicans have been preaching for the past seven years, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare. This is a promise that we have made to the American people. Vote for us based on, based on this alone at, for some candidates. And we are going to do this why has it been so important to them to do this, first of all? And second of all, why then have, do they not have the systems in place to kind of make this as much of a priority as, as their campaigns would suggest? I think they saw this early on as a great political talking point. You know, the Affordable Care Act was pretty controversial when it was passed. It was passed on a partisan basis. Republicans were very angry about that. And of course, that was around the time that the Tea Party movement was getting started and there was a lot of energy there. And so uh, Republicans really kind of just ran with it and kept going. And I think they saw early initial success. Of course, they won back the House in 2010. And then they just decided to kind of keep going with it. and made all of these predictions about the Affordable Care Act. And what's interesting now is that as they struggle to repeal and replace it, it actually is a time when some of their predictions about the Affordable Care Act have come true. The marketplaces haven't worked quite as well in some areas as many people had hoped. Premiums in some areas are up 
they have really struggled, though, because historically this is just not their area. They're much more comfortable talking about tax reform or uh, foreign policy or things like that. And sort of this fundamental problem of healthcare just being really, really expensive. They haven't figured out how to bring down the cost enough so that it's affordable for your average person. That hasn't been true, you know, under the Affordable Care Act. And that wouldn't be true under the Senate bill as well. Yeah. And that makes for a great segue into what is our last question here in our very traditional format, which is our can he do that question. So the question really comes down to can Trump and really the Republican Party at this point come through on their main promise to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act? I would say at this point, yes. I mean, it looks very hard still. McConnell has a lot of ground to cover in the next uh, few weeks. And even if he manages to pass the bill, of course, then it has to go over to the House. And there are a lot of provisions in this Senate bill that the House Freedom Caucus guys aren't going to like. They want to roll back Medicaid expansion sooner. They're not going to like how it retains a lot of the insurance regulations. There still is a pathway forward, though. They could manage to pass this. I mean, perhaps when the Senate bill goes back to the House, they're going to view it as, you know, their one and only chance to follow through on their promise to repeal the Affordable Care Act. I could see a scenario where they just decide to pass it. There's another scenario where the House and Senate could reconcile those two different bills that they passed and then send it to President Trump. So if they do pass this bill, they give it to President Trump, he signs it. Is that an official repeal of the Affordable Care Act or is it more of like a sort of modification of the existing law? You will hear Republicans say, it is a complete repeal of the Affordable Care Act. It is not a complete repeal of the Affordable Care Act. It is a revamp of the Affordable Care Act. Well, Paige, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys can find Paige as the author of The Health 202. Subscribe on WashingtonPost.com or you can follow Paige on Twitter at uh, PW underscore Cunningham. Or as always, you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. If you've made it this far in the podcast, it must mean you like this. So tell us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, subscribe on Stitcher, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts and keep on listening. Thanks so much. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the charming Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan's interviews reveal the people behind today's biggest news. Or try Presidential, where host Lillian Cunningham spent a year exploring the character and legacy of each of the American presidents. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.